Hello there. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We want to hear what you think about Ripple. Please help us out by filling out a short, anonymous survey at ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. That's ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. The BP oil spill was an atomic bomb of consequences, setting in motion a series of events that are still felt today. But to really get how the spill went down the way it did, you have to know about something that happened over two decades before, thousands of miles from Louisiana. What occurred there redirected life paths, including the path of one person who became a central figure, warning about health risks in the aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon blowout. My name is Dr. Ricky Ott, and uh, informally I go by Ricky, which is fine for this. Um, and what is the what is the doctor? What kind of doctor? Oh, um, I have a PhD in marine toxicology from the University of Washington, 1985. Marine toxicology is the study of chemicals' effects on aquatic animals and ecosystems. Back in the 80s, Ricky had some job options in academia and government, but she opted for something different. I had to figure out what I wanted to do, and I thought, hmm. I think I'll just go to Alaska, take one summer off, uh, and sort it out. And thinking about Alaska, I mean, what's a marine biologist to do? So I got a job on a commercial fishing boat, totally fell in love with commercial fishing. Um, The adrenaline rush of it, the scenery, oh my God, it's like you're fishing in a zoo. Um, And the wildness of this land and the people, the energy level, I just was like, okay. So that summer turned into 2016 seven or eight years. Ricky Ott found a home on top of a hill in Cordova, Alaska, a fishing village that can only be reached by boat or plane. Its 2,500 or so occupants supply the country and the world with pink salmon, sockeye, halibut, list goes on. Cordova hides itself in a snowy mountain range. From above, it appears to nestle against the ocean. I'm like adrenaline junkie. I was ski racing. I was doing all kinds of, you know, horrible athletic junkie things. <laughs> Can you give me your, your kind of biggest adrenaline rush story? The Copper River Delta is considered the most dangerous salmon fishery in the entire world. You can get breaking waves of 50 feet high. It was our first year and everybody knows to keep away from the first year rookies. So. Here we are going in the breaker patch and all of a sudden, you know, we were dodging these big walls, like two story high uh, swells coming down. And all of a sudden one just, it's like we didn't dodge it. And our five ton boat is like surfing down this wave. Our feet were in the air. Our boat was on its side, it tipped 90 degrees. And all of a sudden we were upright again. Being upright again was the good news. The bad news was their fishing net had gotten wound up, so now their boat couldn't move. She and her partner, Danny, were trapped among the giant crashing waves. It's like time just like stretched. We were part of the fishermen's co-op and guys had, we learned to ask guys, what's your one piece of advice you would give rookies? And one guy had said, just remember your net is only a piece of string. If you ever think about cutting it, don't hesitate, cut it. 
And, you know, we, that was our only net. We had hung it. It took us like two weeks to hang it. And we both said at the same time, it's only a piece of string. <laughs> and we, Danny whips out his knife again and he cuts it. Okay, so you have, you have this experience. Did you, did you think for a moment about quitting after that? Heck no. <laughs> okay. Ricky Ott's adrenaline-fueled, blissed-out existence was interrupted on March 24, 1989. Alaskans remember this date. Early that morning, someone showed up out of the blue at Ricky's cabin. Bang, bang, bang on my door. And I'm just like, "What? Is there something wrong, you know? And I open the door and there's, there's Jack Lamb, who's the acting director of Cordova District Fisherman United. And he hiked all the way up my hill to get me. And I'm just looking at him like, what, what are you doing here? And um, Jack's just looking steady at me and he says, we've had the big one. So when he said the big one, what did you understand that to mean? That we've had the big tanker wreck that the fishermen all feared. An oil tanker called the Exxon Valdez had an accident. While transporting over 53 million gallons of crude oil, it ran aground in Prince William Sound. Its cargo holds were punctured, and millions of gallons of oil surged into the Gulf of Alaska, near Cordova. And, ugh, it was like surreal. It's, it's hardly ever calm in March, okay? So it was calm, and it was this alpine glow. It was this pink sunrise um, that was glowing through all the clouds, and it was so calm. And then all of a sudden, you come around, um, and it's like disaster. <laughs> There's this tanker that's you know got a red deck on it, and it's sitting on top of this black, inky stain on top of this blue water. And there's this swirl of blue haze just coming into the, into the air. And we all instantly got headaches. And I'm like, this is bad for us. The story of what happened next might sound familiar. The herring run failed. The pick runs fail. We're in trouble. Oil washed ashore. Wildlife perished in numbers difficult to fathom. Fishing ceased. The community broke down. Oh, and a former mayor of ours committed suicide. And, and it was like we were all in it together up to that point. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, what? He left a note saying that the stress was getting too much for him. His bars were closing down. Uh, he didn't know when things were going to get better. Efforts to clean the shoreline were failing. And ultimately a dispersant was sprayed. The same dispersant that would be used 21 years later in the aftermath of the BP oil spill. Corexit. And soon enough health issues started spreading in Cordova. Headaches, dizziness, nausea, tightness in the chest, trouble breathing, and skin rashes. So the next thing you know, I'm hearing from the guys that are out there. And they're, one of them calls me and says, in a total panic, I'm peeing oil. The health symptoms became so commonplace, Alaskan locals gave them a name. People did call it the Valdez crud. And the state of Alaska could not ever find a biological causation for it. I mean, I track this. If it's a biological causation, there god dang better be a bacteria or something or a virus. There wasn't. Using her background as a marine toxicologist, Ricky Ott eventually zeroed in on the components of Corexit and came to believe it was partly to blame for the Valdez crud. You breathe this stuff, it gets in your body, it gets in your cells, and it's like a time bomb, and it can go off at any time. For the next 20 years, 
Ricky warned about the health risks of oil spills and dispersants. She wrote books and toured the country trying to keep alive the Exxon Valdez story. She rallied scientists to take action, but wasn't having much success. And by April 2010, she found herself kind of burnt out on the issue. And I happened to be in Madison, Wisconsin, and I stepped out of the hotel room, and there was the paper, and there was, boom, the Deepwater Horizon blowout, and I just stepped over it. My feeling was, nope, already done that, can't do that again. I still was sort of in denial. She initially refused requests to go down to the Gulf and help out. I just was like, nope, nope, nope. But the Deepwater Horizon story was difficult for her to avoid, even if she wanted to. It occurred to me that everybody, from what I was seeing in the news, was going to make, the fishermen in particular, were going to make the same mistakes we had made in Alaska, uh, thinking that the federal government, the state, the oil industry, they're going to take care of you. I mean, you're the one that's harmed. You're the victim. The magnitude of the BP oil spill dawned on her. In the Exxon Valdez, it was an oil tanker. There was only so much crude that could leak. But the BP spill was surging out of control from the bottom of the ocean with no end in sight. And the amount of Corexit being sprayed dwarfed what was used in Alaska. History was repeating itself at a louder volume. So I said, okay, I'm in. Uh, Can you get me a one-way ticket down to um, New Orleans? From Western Sound and APM Studios, I'm Dan Leon. This is Ripple. When Ricky Ott arrived in Louisiana, her mission was to speak to as many fishermen and coastal residents as possible, especially those who were already participating in the cleanup. And I just felt like I could kind of accelerate time, accelerate their learning curve. I mean, it took me 13 years to figure out. She talked herself into a meeting with the Louisiana Shrimp Association and met with fishermen. And they were getting sick. Ricky calls herself a fisher ma'am, Her years of experience out on the water helped her make inroads fast. She spoke the language. I thought, okay, this is fishermen. I know fishermen. You know, they want to know. Like, it's like you're doing a briefing, a brief, and then let them ask the questions, right? So I started doing that across the Gulf, Um, training people and, you know, telling them, okay, this is what we're in for. Let's brace up for it then, you know. Ricky made residents aware that a dispersant was being sprayed. She explained what the dispersant was supposed to do and encouraged people to ask, is this good for us or is it bad for us? She found that there was a hunger for information that wasn't being fed. And the talks, they were set to start at like 8 o'clock and go to 10 o'clock. Well, that didn't work because people still had questions. So they started at 7 o'clock. They started at 6 o'clock. We still would get done at one or two in the morning, and I would wait until the last person's questions were answered. Coastal residents who were sick or concerned asked Ricky what they should do. She recommended that if possible, they should evacuate. According to her, some took the advice and left the Gulf. These marathon Q&As earned Ricky a respect and a nickname. I was Miss Ricky down there. 
In addition to warning fishermen, Ricky was trying to rip the media's attention away from the leaking wellhead and toward the unprecedented use of dispersants and the growing number of health complaints. I spent the morning until noon working, calling media and talking to media for three months, four hours a day. She also badly wanted answers from an agency that we haven't discussed very much yet. This stuff was still coming ashore and making people sick. Why is EPA saying this is safe? Remember I told you about the unified command structure? That collaboration between BP, the Coast Guard, and a number of agencies in the Obama administration? The Environmental Protection Agency was also part of that collaboration to oversee the oil spill response. The head of the EPA at the time was Lisa Jackson, who had strong ties to New Orleans. This is her speaking at a news conference on April 30th, 2010. Now, what I've said to people is, being from this area, it is not unusual for us to face an incident that we know is coming and to be prepared. And the resilience and strength of the people of the Gulf Coast has been what has gotten us through many, many, many a challenge. This was just 10 days after the blowout. But the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality was already receiving reports that the air, even miles inland, reeked of petroleum. There is a concern about odors. And we do believe that that odor is probably due in part to the spill. There is a large, large sheen. It is a very thin layer. And with uh, increasing wind and wave activity, you get an aerosol out there, and that moves. Now, the question is, what does that mean? We don't have any reason to believe that there's a concern, but we can't answer that question until we get the data. That data uh, collection has already begun. The EPA had started monitoring the air and water for toxicity. Because this was a maritime spill, the EPA didn't have quite as much authority as the Coast Guard, but the use of dispersants was, at least theoretically, under their purview. And Ricky Ott wasn't the only person who felt the EPA wasn't sufficiently flexing the authority they did have. Howdy, Wilma. Welcome, finally. I, I made it. <laughs> this is chemist Wilma Subra. Reason she's saying finally is because my rental car got a flat tire and I was late. With a brand new tire. You have a whole new car? Uh, just no. a tire. <laughs> just a tire. Wilma's based out in New Iberia, Louisiana, southeast of Lafayette. She's got over five decades' experience as a chemist. Her relationship with the EPA is something of a soap opera. She used to consult for them, but became disillusioned. She was convinced that health risks to communities weren't being properly addressed by the agency. So Wilma started her own company, and became a technical advisor for the Louisiana Environmental Action Network. Her expertise in testing for toxicity at spill sites and her successful advocacy in getting them cleaned up earned her a MacArthur Fellowship in 1999, a genius grant, as it's called. So her knowledge and skills were still sought after by the EPA in 2010, post-Deepwater. I work with the people at EPA. Okay. All the time, okay. all the time, on, on sites that I'm working on. And I can speak to them, and they know what I say is usually correct and based on correct information. Wilma was furnishing the EPA with information during the oil spill. One of her first efforts was to address concerns about the safety of the seafood. So one of the projects we did was I taught fishermen how to collect samples and preserve the samples. And then we took them to the lab in Galveston with the university there and had them tested. 
What'd you find? We found all the components of the crude and the components of the dispersant. So then we calculated, if you were a 20-pound child, you could eat this much shrimp. And what amounts did you come up with? I know it's been a long time. A third of a serving, a fourth of a serving, or like two shrimp. And any more than that? Was going to give you over the toxicity level in your body. Just like Ricky, being an expert on chemicals and toxicity made Wilma a lightning rod for cleanup workers and coastal residents. Her phone was ringing off the hook. She and Ricky were growing increasingly bothered by what they were hearing. Here's Ricky again. Dispersants were being sprayed. My phone went berserk. She was getting calls from Vietnam War veterans. And they were, like, screaming in the phone. They did this to us in Nam! Ricky and Wilma were both getting reports that airplanes were spraying dispersants where they shouldn't have been. I'd get calls from the rigs offshore, and they'd say, they're spraying us with the corrected every night, every night. And I'd call EPA and they'd say, Wilma, we're not spraying where there are people and we're not spraying where there are mammals. And they're being sprayed. Did, Did you say they were being sprayed at night? At night, yeah. The reason I got hung up on that was because I had learned that spraying at night wasn't allowed by the EPA. And EPA is saying, that's not what they're supposed to be doing. I said, well, these guys are not lying to me. They are on the rigs offshore. And then people on the shore who lived on the shore said they'd be out sitting on their patio and they'd get sprayed with the dispersant on shore. So they weren't even supposed to be spraying people on shore, much less people offshore. This tracked with what I heard from cleanup workers. The people were sprayed by dispersants from aircraft. We reached out to the Coast Guard requesting an interview or written comment to address questions we had about the use of dispersants during the cleanup. They didn't make anyone available to comment, nor did they provide written comment on these questions. Ricky Ott and Wilma Suber were both disturbed by what they believed was the VU workers' inadequate training on how to safely work around chemicals. But of all their concerns, there was one in particular that seemed to arouse the most outrage in them. So the most alarming was the workers not being provided with protective gear and respirators. Sent out in the boat, not protected, and they're hauling in, and it's all over them. It's all over them. Wilma, again, seemed to be corroborating what I heard from the cleanup workers, that they weren't provided with respirators. In my conversations with Ricky and Wilma, they always found their way back to this point. Nobody was wearing respirators. And they knew enough to want those things. I said, what? Not giving them the protective gear and not giving them the respirators. Okay, this is ridiculous. We need to get respirators out to the fishermen. We reached out to BP, requesting comment on reports that cleanup workers were refused respirators. BP didn't respond to our request. In 2010, as the cleanup progressed and more scrutiny was paid to Corexit, one piece of information started to spread. Corexit had been banned in over a dozen countries. It was even banned in the United Kingdom, where BP was based. 
The pressure was rising on the EPA to give clear answers about the safety risks of Corexit and to crack down on BP's use. But there was a problem. It wasn't clear that the EPA actually had the authority to tell BP what to do. More Ripple after this. We'll be right back. I love to cook. It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy, and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code ripple50 at factormeals.com ripple50. All right, I am set for the week. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. During the cleanup of the BP oil spill, the head of the EPA, Lisa Jackson, was in a tricky spot. Under the Clean Water Act, the EPA is required to have on hand a National Contingency Plan, or NCP. It's a set of rules and guidelines to follow in the event of a toxic spill. After the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska, the EPA updated the National Contingency Plan to reflect the lessons learned from that disaster. They issued a revised NCP in 1994. But the Exxon Valdez spill was a fraction of the size of the BP oil spill. So even the revised NCP seems ill-prepared for a spill of this magnitude and complexity. And this is causing problems. In the use of dispersants, we are faced with environmental trade-offs. We know that surface use of dispersants decreases the environmental risk to shorelines and organisms at the surface. But we are also deeply concerned about the things we do not know. The long-term effects on aquatic life are still unknown, and we must make sure that the dispersants that are used are as non-toxic as possible. The EPA is required by law to maintain a list of dispersants available to be used in the event of an oil spill. To get a dispersant on that list, a manufacturer has to submit data about the product's toxicity and effectiveness. But the EPA doesn't run studies to confirm that data. They only review it. 
When some toxicologists and reporters take a look at the data, they point out that Corexit is one of the least effective and one of the most toxic chemicals that the EPA has shortlisted, raising the question, why is it being used? We are working with manufacturers, with BP and with others to get less toxic dispersants to the response site as quickly as possible. I am increasingly concerned that EPA can and should do more. By May 20th, 2010, hundreds of thousands of gallons of Corexit have been sprayed, and the EPA decides to take action. They make an attempt to rein in BP. They issue a directive telling BP that they have 24 hours to choose a less toxic dispersant from the list. BP responds to that directive, and their response to the EPA is, no, we're gonna keep using Corexit. BP justifies this by saying that the other dispersants on the list might have unintended consequences. And BP says that one of the most important things to consider is availability. They tell the EPA that they have a stockpile of Corexit, so that's what they're gonna to continue to use. At another press conference, EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson pushes back on BP. We have made it clear to BP that we are not satisfied that BP has done an extensive enough analysis of other dispersant options. We expect BP to keep evaluating other options. BP's response to our directive was insufficient, and we are concerned that BP seemed in their response more interested in defending their initial decisions than analyzing possible better options. BP just disregarding the EPA's directive raises some questions on Capitol Hill. Later on, when the Senate holds hearings about the use of dispersants, Senator Barbara Mikulski grills Jackson about her jurisdictional authority. Do you have the power to ban or limit the use of dispersants? What power do you have to act? The uh, National Incident Commander is retired Admiral Thad Allen. Mm -hmm. So can you ban dispersants or limit their use, or does he have to give the approval? Can I personally? Uh, I, I think it is a matter of untested law as to whether EPA, that there is no permit that EPA has given to allow use of these dispersants. So I would not know, and I am not an attorney, uh, but no, but I you are the head of EPA. Could you have the power to act unilaterally? I, I believe I do, Chairman, but I do want my lawyers to get you a response. I know, record in but, but that's a question you needed to know from day one, Ms. Jackson. I believe that often we're told, don't worry, honey, we'll take care of you and it won't hurt. We only then find out that a very good product, what we thought was a good product, turns out to have vile consequences. I don't want dispersants to be the Agent Orange of this oil spill. On May 26, 2010, the EPA tries a different approach to rein in BP. They issue a new directive. And this time, instead of telling BP to choose a less toxic dispersant, they direct them to stop spraying Corexit from the air to the surface of the water. I'm still recommending as strongly as I can uh, that we minimize, absolutely minimize, and I'm talking about a significant reduction uh, in uh, use of dispersants. The directive states that BP needs to cut back the total usage of Corexit by 75%. 
And you might expect that BP refuses this directive as well. But actually, for whatever reason, they don't. BP says that they have started to reduce their use of dispersants and that they are working towards the goals set by the EPA. I started looking into this, and I noticed that what happens next is BP almost immediately begins applying for exemptions to the directive. So the May 26th directive from the EPA states that BP can only spray on the surface in rare cases. If they want that rare exemption, BP has to make a request in writing to an authority called the Federal On-Scene Coordinator. At the time, the Federal On-Scene Coordinator was Coast Guard Rear Admiral Mary Landry. Under the NCP, Landry's job was basically to oversee the oil spill response, and she also worked closely with BP COO Doug Suttles. Under the EPA's directive, it's entirely up to Landry whether or not to grant BP's exemption requests. I found these documents. I tracked the amounts BP requested, whether or not they were approved, and noted anything that seemed fishy along the way. The EPA's directive on reducing the use of Corexit was issued on May 26th. The first exemption request is made only two days later. It's filed by BP COO Doug Suttles. He writes, quote, BP has located a large dispersible oil slick, approximately 90 miles southeast of Houma, Louisiana, end quote. He ends by requesting an exemption to use up to 15,000 gallons of Corexit over a span of 12 hours. This exemption is approved by Mary Landry on the same day it's submitted. Spray on. Spray on. Spray on. The very next day, May 29th, Doug Suttles submits two more exemption requests. One is for 19,000 gallons. This is again immediately approved by Mary Landry. The second exemption request is different. Suttles requests up to 6,000 gallons per calendar day to be used at the source control site, presumably the ocean above the leaking wellhead. But he specifies no date in which this request would expire. He also requests to use more than 6,000 gallons per day at the source site if BP deems it necessary for safety. This request for seemingly unlimited use of Corexit appears to violate the EPA directive in a couple ways. The directive states that exemption requests have to include weather conditions, and this one does not. The directive also asks for mechanical or means for removal that were considered and the reason they were not used. Suttles does not provide this information either. But regardless of those omissions, Mary Landry approves this request the same day it is submitted. Taking the request at its word, BP now has the authority to spray any amount over 6,000 gallons at the source control site indefinitely. The very next day, May 30th, Doug Suttles files yet another exemption request. This request is also surprising because it's requesting authorization for something that already happened. Suttles acknowledges previously unreported instances of surface spraying on May 27th and 28th. He requests retroactive approval of those occurrences. Again, 
Mary Landry approves the request the same day it is submitted. Then there's a changing of the guard. A James A. Watson takes over for Mary Landry as federal on-scene coordinator. Exemption requests are filed every single day from June 2nd to June 6th, and they're all approved on the same day. From the date the EPA directive is issued, May 26th to July 11th, exemption requests are filed nearly every single day, sometimes by BP COO Doug Suttles and sometimes by HOMA Unified Command. In all but a few instances, they are approved by the federal on-scene coordinator the same day or the following day. These exemptions were only meant for rare cases. Over 700,000 gallons had been sprayed on May 26th, when the EPA asked BP to reduce dispersant spraying by 75%. By the end of the spraying, on July 19th, 1.84 million total gallons had reportedly been sprayed. We reached out to the Coast Guard seeking comment on the decision-making processes of the federal on-scene coordinators. The Coast Guard didn't make anyone available to answer our questions on that topic. So, it appears the EPA did try to rein in the use of dispersants. And they weren't the only ones trying. I knew from Exxon Valdez that dispersants needed to be banned and that workers needed to be protected. Ricky Ott and Wilma Subra tell a story of a chaotic cleanup operation. Planes spraying dispersants when and where they weren't supposed to. Inadequately trained cleanup workers spending days surrounded by toxic chemicals with no respirators to protect them. Uh, but we could not get dispersants banned. For all their efforts, there were just too many forces working against them. The workers didn't have any liquids provided to them. It was hot, and they didn't have anything to drink. So they weren't attending to the workers that they were engaging. They didn't have any shade, and mostly on the beach, but the ones in the boats as well. Wilma says she did manage to convince her contacts at OSHA to provide more shade and more fluids to the cleanup workers. But... Still, no respirators. Hearing all this, I thought, if this were truly the reality along the coast in 2010, it would only be a matter of time before something went really obviously wrong. And something did go wrong. Most of us just never heard anything about it. We're going to get into it after the break. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about another podcast to check out called Drilled. Drilled is a true crime podcast about climate change that's hosted by award-winning investigative journalist Amy Westervelt and reported by a team of climate journalists. The podcast investigates the various obstacles that have kept the world from responding to climate change. You can listen now to the latest episodes of Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Let's see what we got here. I love to cook. 
It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy, and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code ripple50 at factormeals.com slash ripple50. All right. I am set for the week. Dispersants never quite made their way into the Deepwater Horizon story that lodged in the public consciousness. But they might have come close. A while back, Ripple's senior reporter, Betsy Shepard, told me she found something. Betsy said something happened in this three-day period in May 2010, when apparently all hell broke loose. While I was doing archival research on BP's use of dispersants and their response to the EPA's directive on May 26th, I came across a really dramatic news story about something that also happened that day. And the most mammoth oil spill in American history is about to become the most mammoth oil cleanup ever. And seven workers cleaning up the spill had to be hospitalized. Headaches and nausea. Doctors blamed chemical irritation and the heat. The seven workers had to be hospitalized on May 26th? That's right. And, you know, previously we'd heard about health complaints, but this was the first time that we heard of a medical crisis happening to cleanup workers where it is suspected that they were sick because of chemical exposure. There was a scarcity of coverage on the event. As I started digging, trying to find more details about this, I did find a more in-depth report from Democracy Now! In Louisiana, seven fishermen involved in the cleanup of the BP oil spill were hospitalized on Wednesday after reporting nausea, dizziness, headaches, and chest pains. As a precautionary measure, the Unified Command has ordered all 125 commercial ships helping with the cleanup in Breton Sound, Louisiana, to return to land. We're joined now in New Orleans by Clint Guidry, president of the Louisiana Shrimp Association. Clint Guidry, the fishermen, the cleanup workers who've been brought to the hospital, what do you understand about their condition and who they are? Um, I haven't—I'm not going to say any names. It's some people that I know. Uh, When I left last night at the hospital, these workers were—I was being told by the emergency room people that they were okay and they were being stabilized. So the following day, on May 27th, the Coast Guard's Meredith Austin gives an update on the spill, and she addresses the incident. Good afternoon. The safety of our team members is our number one priority, and the Coast Guard, BP, and OSHA are currently conducting an investigation, which includes air sampling, checking food and water, and interviewing crew members to determine what might have caused the symptoms. It's important to keep in mind that there are other factors 
which may potentially cause these sorts of symptoms. These factors range from fatigue, working in hot weather, dehydration, and even the smell of petroleum from the spill may affect some individuals. And a journalist who's on the conference call challenges these other causes. Your first question comes from Janik McConaughey with Associated Press. Okay, that, um, are you aware that the emergency room doctor has said that all of the symptoms were uh, typical of chemical exposure and that according to the uh, hospital spokesman, he did not think that uh, heat was a, was a uh, factor? Uh, no, no I, I was not aware that the, the, the doctor in the emergency room said that and our toxicologists have, have said that it's possible that just by being around the, the odor of petroleum, it, for some individuals are sensitive to it and can give them similar symptoms without there being a chemical overexposure. So other public statements and press conferences that are given by officials also frame this by suggesting alternate causes of the illness. Here's a clip of Mary Landry from the Coast Guard. She was also the federal on-scene coordinator for the Unified Command and overseeing the response efforts. As you all know, the uh, heat and humidity in Louisiana can be challenging. And we did have an incident yesterday where uh, we had seven people that were hospitalized with various symptoms, headaches, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath. So we have heat and humidity, we have chemical sensitivity, and then the CEO of BP, Tony Hayward, proposes another theory. I'm sure they were genuinely ill, but whether it was anything to do with dispersants and oil, whether it was food poisoning or some other reason for them being ill, you know, there's a... Food poisoning is clearly a big issue when you've got, you know, concentration of this number of people on, in temporary camps, temporary accommodation. It's something we have to be very, very mindful of. It's one of the big issues of, of keeping the army operating. You know, the army's marching on their stomachs. Also in the press conference that the federal on-scene coordinator Mary Landry gave, she said something that was really surprising to me. People are very concerned about the volume of dispersants. The EPA and the Coast Guard actually requested that we reduce it to as much as possible and issued a directive to BP. Uh, we have not had to apply surface dispersants recently. This surprised me because BP reported that they did, in fact, spray around 7,200 gallons of core exit on May 26th, the day of the incident. And they sprayed 1,000 gallons the following day on the 27th. And I just want to point out that Doug Suttles, the COO of BP, also made a comment on the incident at this May 27th press conference. And he addresses concerns over the dangers of dispersants, basically saying, well, you know what? They've been approved by the EPA, so we're going to use them. You know, the, the Corexit product is one that's on the EPA approved list. And there's been extensive study of that product by uh, many groups and the EPA included. So the, the product we're using with, with approval by the federal on-scene coordinator and the EPA and others has been this Corexit product. I think that everyone should recognize we've only done that with approval by the appropriate government parties. We have not, I want to stress this, we have not ignored in any way the things we've been directed to do. And... You know, people are questioning, like, is BP running the show here? Are they calling the shots? What is the government doing to ensure that BP has our best interests at heart? So at the end of these 
three days in May. President Obama is making his second visit to South Louisiana to observe cleanup efforts in person. President Obama gave a press conference on May 27th, right in the middle of this three-day period. He addressed this specific point about the federal government rubber stamping BP's approach to this bill. This notion that somehow the federal government is sitting on the sidelines and for the last three or four or five weeks, we've just been letting BP make a whole bunch of decisions is simply not true. There may be areas where there have been disagreements, for example, on dispersants, and these are complicated issues. But overall, the decisions that have been made have been reflective of the best science that we've got, the best expert opinion that we have, and have been weighing various risks and various options to allocate our resources in such a way that we can get this fixed as quickly as possible. You know, in this series, we're talking about this version of the Deepwater Horizon story that basically cemented in the public consciousness. And I feel like what you've just told me, the story that you've just told me, is corrects it, the potential dangers of dispersants, this medevac incident, sort of threatening to puncture that bubble. Like, it's threatening to become part of the story we all remember, but instead it's just stomped out like a cigarette. Like, do we know for certain what happened to the medevac workers? Was was this ever investigated or, or no? So, you know, if you remember back from the May 27th press conference, they say this incident is being investigated by the Coast Guard, BP, and OSHA. So, um... This was the last word I heard about it. We are lacking in specific details and, you know... There's a hundred different ways you can tell a story, depending on what you choose to focus on. There's conversations behind every story you hear, deciding what to focus on. Dispersants. Yeah. Um... Hypothetically, uh, if we wanted to try to find out When Betsy and I have those conversations, we often have to be pragmatic about telling the stories we want to tell, like the story of what really happened to these medevac workers. You know, what I would do is I would submit records request with these different federal agencies. And, you know, There's a lot of reasons not to focus on the story of the medevac workers. There's no guarantee federal agencies would be cooperative or responsive. And even if they were, records requests would be about a medical incident. So they likely wouldn't have the names of the workers if that's how we wanted to try to find the workers themselves. There were also a lot of reasons not to focus on this story back in 2010. Remember, during all of this, the wellhead was still leaking. Oil was still screwing up the Gulf's ecosystem. Those things demanded the media's attention. They were important. But there's also a lot of reasons you would focus on this story. They're also recalling 125 boats. I mean, they wouldn't do that unless there was a serious concern that they had about other workers. And for Betsy and I, the reasons you would focus on the medevac workers 
ultimately outweighed the reasons you wouldn't. It would be important to follow up and see what happened to the workers that may have been overexposed, because that could be really telling about the effects of core exit. Yeah, I agree. I agree, 100%. Um, then, then yeah, I think I think this is a this is a, a big part of our investigation. Then I think I think we try to get to the bottom of this. I, I think it's important enough that that it's worth the uh, the possibility that uh, everyone gets mad at us for coming up empty-handed. <laughs> but I think I think it's worth the risk. Yeah. So we'll do it. Ripple is produced by Western Sound and APM Studios. It's created by me, Dan Leon, for Western Sound. Ben Adair is the executive producer. Erica Kraus is the executive producer for APM Studios. Ripple is written and hosted by me, Dan Leon. Betsy Shepard is the senior reporter and producer. Colin McNulty is the editor. Original music is composed by me, Sound design by me and Alex McGinnis. Alex mixed and mastered the show. Sarah Dealey and Stella Hartman are the associate producers. Research and fact-checking by Savannah Wright, with additional fact-checking by Betsy Shepard. Additional reporting by Haley Fox. Nick Ryan is APM Studios' senior production manager. And the executives in charge for APM Studios are Joanne Griffith, Alex Schaffert, and Chandra Kavati. To learn more about what you've heard, visit our website at ripplepodcast.org.